Dude, Michael, this Taylor Swift thing, Damon Albarn basically accused you of being a clickbait journalist on Twitter. What'd you make of that? I mean, that's fine. Pop star is going to pop star. <laughs> Susie, did you think it was going to be this crazy? I think that anyone who knows Swifties, aka Taylor Swift fans, they knew what was coming. It was a Taylor Swift diss heard around the world. She doesn't write her own songs. That's what Damon Albarn, the lead singer for the British bands Blur and Gorillaz, said to my colleague, pop music critic Michael Wood. The drama between Taylor and Damon got real, but it also hit on something really interesting. Songwriting and who gets the credit? It's a thing. Now, more than ever. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Friday, January 28th, 2022. I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan. I know who she is and she's cool, but I'm not a fan. And I had to look up who Damon Albarn is, but this beef between them, it's not just pop fluff. There's real industry-wide and cultural implications for all of us and especially the people who make the music that you love. And here to talk about all of this are two of my L.A. Times colleagues, music writers Michael Wood and Susie Exposito. Michael, Susie, welcome to The Times. Thanks, Gustavo. Thanks for having us here. So, Michael, let's rewind to earlier this week. Monday morning, you just published this interview with Damon Albarn. What happened next? So Damon Albarn, you know, frontman of the great 90s Britpop band Blur and Gorillaz, which people might know. I'd had a chat with him last week at his hotel because he was going to play a show at uh, Disney Hall. This show that he was going to do at Disney Hall was just him on a solo piano. And so we were talking about, like, what is, well, how do you sort of rearrange your work when you perform like that? And he was like, well, it's kind of interesting. It's a day of reckoning, he used the phrase, and sort of said that it shows you which of your songs were kind of relying on production or cool guitar sounds or whatever, and which of them had, like, you know, the bones of a good song, like a good chord progression, good lyrics, good melody, yada, yada. And then he was like, he sort of said this comment, he was like, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of modern music could like withstand that day of reckoning. And I was like, oh, uh, that's interesting to me. I don't, that's what you think? And he was like, well, yeah, name me someone whose work could. And the first person that came to mind was this Taylor Swift. As super modern of a pop star as she is, in a lot of ways, she's also super, super old school. I mean, she's like Carole King up in this. Like she's traditional songwriter. And so that was just the first person I thought of. And, you know, he was like, oh, she doesn't write her own words and then blah, blah, blah. I mean, I brought Taylor Swift up. It's not like he came to the interview, like, ready to start something about Taylor Swift. I think that probably he just kind of assumed that she fit into a certain heritage of kind of like pop stars that maybe don't write their own songs. And he picked somebody about whom he happened to be wrong. So I published my story and then Taylor Swift herself weighs in and sort of tells Damon Albarn that that's not the case and that she writes all of her songs. And he uh, jumps back in and apologizes a little bit after that. And it just turns into this whole thing. Um, Taylor was signed as a songwriter and got her first contract at 14 because of it. Speak Now is written entirely on her own. And there's literally nothing about it that looks different than the Beatles process in Get Back. Why is it always, she writes about her exes, she doesn't know how to write, others write her songs. Why can't we simply give the woman the credit she deserves and move on? Well, Damon Albarn has a point. 
Anyways, stand gorillas. So did you think that throwaway line by Damon would spark the fury that it did? I mean, look, rock stars, musicians, pop stars, people are super circumspect these days. You don't often hear someone trash talk anybody else in the business. And by the way, Taylor Swift was not the only person he said anything about in this interview. I mean, he talked trash about the Rolling Stones and about Boris Johnson. So I figured it would, you know, garner some interest. I cannot say that I anticipated Taylor herself jumping into the fray. Susie, were you surprised at the collective outrage of everything? Well, as a longtime fan of Damon Albarn and Taylor Swift, I was pretty bummed out. Like, Taylor wrote the entirety of Speak Now by herself when she was 19 years old. But generally, I'm not sure where the derision against, you know, working with songwriters or other people comes from in the first place. I always thought of Damon Albarn as a great lyricist, but I still don't think that he would be where he is right now were he not in this wildly popular band called Blur. And then Gorillaz. Like, if he feels differently about that, then I think his bandmates would like to have a word. We'll continue this musical debate after a quick break. So, Susie, before the break, Michael was telling us about Damon Albarn and Taylor Swift, the controversy, and it boiled down at the end to this supposed difference between writing a song and co-writing one. But it also brings up something else that you're seeing now a lot in music. People are being rewritten into album credits, not just the people who wrote the songs, but the instrument players, the producers, engineers, all sorts of these other roles. Well, I think that music has always been a collaborative art form. No artist is an island, contrary to, you know, the the opinions of some artists. But (laughs) I think countless of the greatest pop songs were written by teams of songwriters or just bands in tandem with each other, in conversation with each other. Take the Beatles, who, as we saw in the recent documentary, Get Back, they had to break up their personal and professional stalemate by inviting R&B musician Billy Preston, who famously played with guys like Lil Richard, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, and they invited him to join their Let It Be sessions. And he played the electric piano that showed up in the song, Get Back. I mean, Billy Preston cut through that static energy and it went so swimmingly well that John Lennon even asked to make him the fifth Beatle. (laughs) So to collaborate with other people isn't an indictment. It's actually how a lot of the best music happens. But Michael, if collaboration has always been a main component of the music industry as we know it, and we're talking over 100 years, ever since you start recording stuff on those old like wax cylinders, then why does it feel like songwriting credits especially are disputed so much more now than ever before? I think you can trace a lot of this to the infamous Blurred Lines uh, lawsuit. And this, people might remember the Robin Thicke and Pharrell song. Blurred Lines, it had sort of a very like racy music video and some critics called it out because it sort of seemed to be talking about rape culture. 
Robin Thicke is in the song. He's saying, I know you want it and all this stuff. Big, huge hit, but also a very kind of controversial song. And one of the ways it was controversial is because the Marvin Gaye estate sued Pharrell and Robin Thicke, the songwriters of the song, because they said that the song bore an unmestakable similarity to Marvin Gaye's song, Got to Give It Up, from the late 70s. What made it sort of interesting and unique and kind of problematic is that the jury was directed to decide this copyright infringement case on the basis of the two songs sheet music was blurred lines stealing musical elements from the sheet music of Got to Give It Up. And that's what they ultimately decided, yes, it had. But the way that the decision was sort of perceived is that more they were making this decision based on like a shared vibe that Blurred Lines was sort of cribbing the kind of spirit or the attitude or the sonic fingerprint of Got to Give It Up. And that had kind of a chilling effect because all of a sudden you had songwriters kind of being like, oh, now we can't pay homage to earlier songs without someone hitting us up saying that we've ripped off their copyright. Marvin Gaye is now credited as one of the co-writers of Blurred Lines now, right? Because of all this. Correct. And he's not the only one. There was a Sam Smith song where Tom Petty got cut in as a songwriter. It's happening more and more. We're sort of seeing these people kind of retroactively cut in as songwriters. So obviously, Michael, now there's this huge monetization factor in trying to get credits and people pushing and asking for credits as well. Yeah, I mean, look, music is made a lot differently than it used to be. The gold rush is basically because of streaming. Streaming made music valuable again. After years of plummeting CD sales, you know, the record labels were sort of, they weren't making money anymore. And then streaming, you got people to pay for subscriptions to Spotify and Apple Music. And so now music and holding the rights to music is actually a lucrative thing again. People know The Weeknd, he put out a new record a couple weeks ago, and I was struck by, in the credits, Bruce Johnston from the Beach Boys, who is not somebody that you might be used to seeing on a modern pop record, the credits. He was in there. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me find out how that happened. So I called up Bruce Johnston, uh, you know, like 73 or something year old Bruce Johnston. Hey, man, how'd you get on The Weeknd record? And he told me this sort of long, uh, shaggy dog story about how he had befriended a music producer through the DJ Skrillex, and then they started writing music, and it was very free form, and they would just, like, work in this guy's studio. And the music that they made, it wasn't necessarily for anything specific, but one of the little bits that they recorded ended up making its way to The Weeknd, who liked it, and who so took the song and then wrote his own song sort of out of that song and added his own lyrics and his own melody, yada, yada. And so the song takes this path that no one could have predicted. And that's not unusual these days. People write little bits of songs that then end up becoming these other songs. And so when you do that, it's not about Lennon and McCartney, two people in a room, then splitting the songwriting in half. It's about how much creative equity do you have in this song? Do you get 10%? Do you get 20%, 30%, whatever? I've had other people tell me that that stuff can get sliced and diced to kind of an absurd level where you get the lyric with the sort of split and it'll be like, you know, somebody has wrote three words in a song and yet they're somehow entitled to 10%, 20%, whatever it is in the song. So point is, it's gotten a lot more complicated than it used to be. We'll be right back.
So Susie and Michael, before the break, we were talking about this process of songwriting and how people are given credits, which result in royalties. On one hand, yeah, you get money from writing the songs, but there's always been that credibility factor that, uh, Susie, we were talking about earlier, like this idea with Dylan. People always praised him above other folks, like, say, Carol King, for that matter, because he was supposed to be this solitary genius. He was more authentic. If you write songs about things you experience yourself, somehow that makes you better than a singer. I think that there's also, like, a misogynistic component to it, you know? If you're not a man in the music industry, choosing the right producer and songwriter can give you a certain level of credibility and prestige. Even if you're already established as an artist, if you're somewhat of a newcomer in a particular genre or scene, people are more likely to slam those who aren't men for trying to break in. And, you know, they project these like really cynical pretenses. I'm a child of the 2000s and I remember how snarky we all were for Avril Lavigne going from singing country to pop punk. <laughs> but when Taylor Swift wanted to make her turn from country to a more like maximalist pop sound, she worked with guys like Max Martin and Jack Antonoff on 1989. When she saw a more indie folk vibe, she collaborated with Aaron Dessner from The National to make Folklore and then Evermore. And the former won her the Grammy for Album of the Year last year. But, you know, I also think of Halsey, who's had a robust pop career with multiple number one hits under their belt. They released some fantastic rock songs like the song Nightmare that didn't quite hit as hard on the charts. And they really wanted to break into the alternative space. I think their voice is really well suited for that. But they sought collaboration with these industrial rock legends, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross from Nine Inch Nails, who ended up co-writing and producing their last album, If I Can't Have Love, I Want Power. And people have really been raving about it. And this year, Halsey is actually nominated for their first solo Grammy and in the alternative category. Could that have happened without the endorsement of men. I don't know, you know, it's still so fraught. And I think that even if women and non-binary artists like Taylor Swift or Halsey are perfectly capable of going it alone in their careers, I think that they're still rewarded for working with men. I mean, I think of Taylor Swift and look, I'm not the biggest Taylor fan, but I always found it weird how so many people trash her. Like they say she's pop, she's fake, but she's writing about her life. She's writing about her own experiences. So how does that make her somehow less authentic than other songwriters, Michael, just because she does collaborate with people sometimes? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as Susie has said, there's a long tradition of sort of underestimating the kind of creative agency of young women. It's interesting because you also saw this a little bit with Olivia Rodrigo that people, of course, I'm sure would know from her big breakout year last year with her song Driver's License, a very post-Taylor Swift artist, you know, an avowed Swifty for young people today. She is kind of like Lennon McCartney in a lot of ways. So what's interesting about Olivia is, you know, I talked to her last year for a story in the LA Times envelope, and she had gotten one of these deals where she was retroactively cutting in people because people said, oh, your song sounds like so-and-so. And I asked her about that, and she said, yeah, it's disappointing to sort of see my creative authority or my creative agency undercut just as a kind of matter of course. 
one of the interesting things here that shows how complicated a lot of this is, one of the people that she cut in was Taylor Swift. In one instance, it was a very sort of, she had said, I'm interpolating this song by Taylor Swift, and so she is a songwriter. But in another case, it's a little more opaque. Taylor became accredited songwriter. How did that happen? Who knows? Was there legal pressure? Was this like a preemptive, you know, action? Who knows? I, I have no idea. But it just goes to show that the whole thing is pretty complicated in terms of how you sort out these credits sometimes. And also just agency. And Susie, as you're seeing more uh, young people wanting to write their own songs, putting them on TikTok and trying to, you know, write their life and sing their life. Do you see these types of controversies about what makes a real songwriter versus a co-writer versus a fake writer flaring up more in the future? Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying about Bob Dylan being this like solo auteur. I don't think Bob Dylan would have been what he was without Woody Guthrie and like the legacy of all the artists that he emulated. Going back to Lead Belly, like I said before, no artist is an island. Music is a conversation with the world. And I think that unfortunately with the commercialization of music, there comes these really tough conflicts that we have to kind of detangle as people who listen to music, consume music, make music. So I, I think that it's only going to get trickier. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, nobody, <laughs> nobody wants to sing for free. People want to get paid for their work. And as songwriting evolves and as co-writing becomes a more complicated enterprise with more people involved and working in different ways, people writing songs over Zoom during the pandemic. It's not about a guy or a woman sitting in a room with an acoustic guitar, like sort of writing a song anymore. I mean, it can be, but it's not always that. And so what goes along with that is sort of sorting out the financial or the business infrastructure to kind of match the new ways that people work, the new creative ways that people work. Susie, Michael, thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much, Gustavo. <laughs> thank you, man. It was good to be here. Loved it. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Next week, freeway displacement, the murders of Mexican journalists, the Olympics, and me inside the actual metaverse. A lot of great stories coming. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brosalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us Tapuchia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back next week with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. Oh, I, you don't want to start me on music because I could sing nonstop. I'll, I'll do my singing right now. I'll, I'll give you another version right here. Coming up. I write a song. Okay, I don't, but I might sing. So please, please, please don't shake me off. Shake me off. There you go. We'll be right back to where you started from. But that's Beatles. Shannon doesn't know the Beatles. <laughs>